Amen. Worship team, thank you for leading us in worship. Children, uh, you're going to stay put this morning. There's not but just a few, and so parents, don't worry. Your children are okay. I can get as loud as I need to get. So everybody sit back and relax, and let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, we're going to see a another very familiar passage, and I hope this morning we'll see it in a way that maybe you've not seen it before, and you'll see some details that maybe you haven't recognized in the past, the book of Daniel has been a lot of fun for me to preach through. I don't know if you've enjoyed listening to it or not, but I am having a ball studying through and walking through the book of Daniel. And so this morning, I'm excited. We are looking forward to just a great time in the Word this morning as we get to what is commonly known as the handwriting on the wall that takes place here in Daniel chapter 5. And what we're looking at this morning is God's judgment on sin and rebellion. And in the text this morning, we're going to see four truths concerning God's judgment on sin and rebellion. What I want you to notice in this text is that we are King Belshazzar. We are the ones that, if we are not careful, will sin against God and turn our back against the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of the universe. And so let's look at the text this morning. Let's begin as we have been by just sort of setting the stage and reading the first four verses this morning. We'll pray and then we'll walk our way through the text as we continue. And so in Daniel chapter 5, picking up in verse 1, it says, says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, listen to this, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. Now that should cause you to pause for a minute and, and your, your mind should be going, wait a minute. That's not okay. That's not appropriate. Those are the holy and sanctified instruments and vessels that were in the temple. Those things are not to be played with. Amen? That as students of the Bible, that should be our first indication that this is not going to go well. And so we see that he took those that were taken out of the temple in Jerusalem to be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this text this morning, Lord, we are excited for what you are going to teach us and show us and reveal to us this morning. Lord, it is no surprise to us that sin is a problem. Lord, it is a problem in our own hearts and in our own lives. It is certainly a problem in the society and the world that we live in today. And Lord, I pray that through this text that we will understand that sin is a big problem, that sin is a big deal that must be dealt with in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak through the text this morning, that you would be glorified and honored in us and through us now. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. 
Amen. Now, the, the, the first thing we're going to see this morning in the text, we're going to see those four truths concerning God's judgment on sin and rebellion. The first truth we're going to see this morning is this. The sin of man is rebellion against the one true God. In other words, when we take sin and we take all of its different forms and all of its different kinds and all of its different activities, sin sort of melted down is basically, sin is a rebellion against the one true God. It is a rebellion against our God, the God of Israel, the God of the universe. Sin is rebellion against the one true God. Now, the context of this is really interesting. So I want you to kind of stay with me for a minute as we look at the historical context to sort of begin. These events take place about 30 years after the events of chapter 4. And so remember, in chapter 4, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. He is humiliated. He's given the mind of an animal. He's driven from his kingdom only to then get his kingdom back. And it appears that Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of his life, professes faith in the God of Israel and probably even gets saved because he has put his faith in the God of Israel. 30 years after that, these events take place in chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar is dead and Belshazzar is now on the throne. But it gets even more interesting than that because on this very night that the king decides to throw this party, he is only on the throne because his dad, Nabonidus, has fled Babylon, most likely because he had been defeated in battle earlier and he had run in fear because the Mede and Persian Empire was literally outside the city walls during this party. That's right. On this night, Babylon is going to fall. This is October the 11th in the evening into the 12th in the morning in 539 B.C. where we know that Babylon falls to the Persian Empire. And so get this, the Mede-Persian Empire is literally outside the city walls. They have taken captive all of Babylon's territory except for the city. The walls were impenetrable, the king thought. And so the king decides for some reason to throw this party. History tells us that it was on this very night that there was a large party that took place in the city of Babylon. That party served very well as a distraction so that the Babylonians did not notice that the Persians had literally redirected the flow of the Euphrates River that ran through the city. And after having redirected the flow, the water of the river began to subside, allowing the Persian army and soldiers to infiltrate the city walls by wading through the river under the wall and surprising the Babylonians who were a little distracted by a wild party that was taking place within their lords and kings. This is incredible, amen? And what is so fascinating is just to see how the God of the universe is attested even in our history. Now we know that history is not the authority, God's word is the authority, amen? But it's always nice when God's word is sort of solidified and and, and made more real with historical accounts. And that's what we have in this text. And so the text is incredibly interesting. Again, for reasons unknown, giving that historical context, 
Belshazzar decided to make a great feast. And he invited a thousand of his lords. Notice that he invites his wives, his concubines. He invites everybody of import to the party. And it says in verse 1 that the king tasted wine in front of the crowd. Now the reason that that verse is mentioned in that way is because this is not normal. Babylonian kings did not drink in front of their subjects because it was seen as a sign of weakness and it was improper. For him to drink in front of his guests was an indication to his guests that this party is going to get out of control. As a matter of fact, the drinking that we see in verse 1, the language suggests that it wasn't just a toast, thank you for coming, Right, But it was a continual drinking whereby he was constantly and continually drinking in front of his crowd. The presence of his wives and concubines being highlighted so often through the text suggests that this was not just a party. This was a wild and incredibly immoral party that was taking place amongst Babylon's king and his other lords and leaders that were there present at the party. And so this is the kind of party that you would not be at, that none of us would want to be at. This is an incredibly shameful and wicked, sinful and immoral thing that is going on. And what appears is that after the drink had kicked in and probably after Belshazzar had become drunk with wine, he decided it a good idea to send for the vessels that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now all of a sudden, this party has gone from sinful to just pure stupid and foolish. Because even the Babylonians, as great as they were, as mighty as they thought they would be and as thought they were, they did not normally insult other gods. Remember, they worshipped a plethora of gods. They were polytheistic. They worshipped a lot of different gods. And no one during this time would have poked fun of another god because that would have been considered not just improper, but that would have been considered foolish as Belshazzar is going to soon find out. Right? And so apparently the wine is flowing. He's no longer thinking as, as, as well as he probably ought to be thinking. And he makes a decree. Hey, bring in the golden vessels that my Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that we can drink from them. And as if that wasn't enough blasphemy, he then decides let's use these vessels to offer up praise and worship to our false gods of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and stone. And what we begin to see is we begin to see a good picture of what sin is. You see, they were deliberately taunting the God of Israel. This was a clear attack on the person of God and understand all sin is. We have been created in the image of God to bring Him glory. And therefore, any time we reject God and sin, we are sinning against Him and we are rebelling against His will for our lives. Listen, I want you to understand how big of a deal sin is. Sin is not the accident that we tend to make it out to be. Sin is not the thing that we tend to struggle with, but it's okay. Everybody's struggling with. All of those things are true. Sin is something we all struggle with. Amen? Sin is something that we accidentally fall into, but sin is also things that we purposefully do when we sin against God. Amen? Let's be honest. Right, But whether it's the small little sin that you stumble into or the big sin that you deliberately do in known rebellion against God, all sin, 
all sin is rebellion against the one true God. All sin is an attack and an assault on the character and the image of God that we possess. Sin is a big, big deal. And just because we all struggle with it doesn't make it less of a big deal. Amen? And so that's what this text is pointing us in the direction of. That's what this text is highlighting for us by demonstrating and showing us an extreme sin. We get to see that sin is a big, big deal. And so what we find is that all sin is a big deal. All sin must be dealt with. Sin is not hidden from God. Sin is rebellion against God. And so first of all, we see the sin of man is rebellion against the one true God. And then secondly, the sin of man does not go unnoticed by God. Now look with me in verse 5. In verse 5, it says, Immediately... The fingers of a human hand appear and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. Opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. So King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed and his lords were perplexed. Now it is hard to imagine and visualize what's taking place in these moments. But for us to sort of visualize it, it has to be like something out of a horror movie that maybe we can imagine. It was an incredible, an incredible moment. In in, in the blink of an eye, immediately the text says, The party is over and the fun has stopped. Immediately, Belshazzar sees fingers of a hand appear out of nowhere and begin writing on the wall. The text says that Belshazzar's color changed. In other words, he became white with fear as color left his body. It says that his thoughts alarmed him. In other words, he was freaked out of his mind. He was scared to death. His his body parts went limber, it says, that his 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 joints sort of stopped working and his knees began to knock together in fear. The word that his uh, the phrase where it says that his limbs gave way, it can also mean that he lost control of his bladder and his bowels, which give us a greater picture of what's happening. He is scared as scared can be, and he literally loses control of his body. And all of a sudden, he cries out loudly for all of his wise men, enchanters, all anybody who's got anything to give to this situation, he all hollers for them to come in and to look at the writing on the wall, to read it and to interpret it. Now understand that the reason they couldn't read it is because during this time period when you wrote, you did not use spaces or vowels. Everything was in all caps, no spaces, no vowels, and so it was almost like a word jumble. You had to decipher what were the words What should have been the vowels? Therefore, what is the meaning? And so as they look on the wall, none of his wise men, not to our surprise, by the way, we're used to that at this point in the book of Daniel, right? 
Wise men, the astrologers, the, the Chaldeans, they know nothing. They have nothing to offer. Why do they keep wasting their time by inviting them into these situations, right? <laughs> but yet, here they are again, and they have no clue what to do. And so what we see is that they had been mocking the God of Israel, and now the hand of God appears and was writing on the wall for all to see, including the king. And this reminds us, too often we think that we are getting away with our sin, that somehow God does not see or will not notice. But this text is a clear indication that God sees all and God knows all. Amen? Now, I know the reason that no one immediately said amen and I had to make you. It's because that is an ouch moment. Because the reality is, as we set foot in this place this morning, we are all still struggling with sin. As I, as I like to joke sometimes, you probably sinned trying to get ready for church today if you got ready in a house with more than one person, right? Now me, I, I was pretty good this morning because I left before Carrie was out of the bed, and so we didn't get in each other's ways. Our, our kids are not with us, so Carrie probably had a better morning than most mornings, but I'm telling you, getting our beautiful, lovely little girl to church on time with an outfit that is appropriate can be a challenge, Don't tell her I said so. Amen? Sometimes getting your family to church can be a difficult proposition on a Sunday morning. And there are many, many, many Sunday mornings where we sit here as those who need to repent before we start just because of trying to get here on time. Right? And there are many, many other days throughout the week where we still struggle with sin. But if we're honest... There are also those times where we feel like we're getting away with something. We, we act as if and we sin as if just because no one else sees or no one else knows that somehow God doesn't notice. Now listen, this is a clear, deliberate attack on God. This is Belshazzar mocking the God of Israel. And it is not a surprise to us that God shows up. But I want you to understand that just because God showed up in a visible way here does not mean that God does not notice our sin when he doesn't show up like this. It is God's grace that he doesn't show up like this for us. Amen. Like, thank you, Jesus, for not doing this to me in my life when, I, when, I, when I've probably deserved this from time to time, right? And so what we begin to see is just because no one else knows, it doesn't mean that what we are doing has somehow gotten over on God, that God is in the dark, or that God has not noticed. What this text makes clear is that sin is a rebellion against the one true God, and the sin of man does not go unnoticed by God. Now here's what I hope you are beginning to notice. We have a sin problem. I hope that's what's beginning to take, make it clear. We're stacking these truths up and all of these truths are a problem for us. The sin of man is rebellion against God. That's a problem, amen? The sin of man does not go unnoticed by God. That is also a problem. That means that my sin is rebellion against that God and that that God sees all of my sin. But that's not all. 
we also see in this text that the sin of man separates us from God's perfect standard. Now pick up with me now in verse 10. We're going to read verses 10 through 28 in in kind of uh, chunks and sections as we move through. So we're just going to begin. Let's read verses 10 through 12, then we'll jump in. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. And in verse 10, the commotion had had gotten the attention of who is identified as the queen. Now, just to kind of make this a little bit clear, this is likely not Belshazzar's wife, but most likely is his mother or even more likely possibly his grandmother. This was probably the daughter or the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. Notice this is the person who has first-hand knowledge of what took place when Nebuchadnezzar was king and all that Daniel had done and all that Daniel had had proven. As a matter of fact, if you link this with other historical accounts, it is most likely that Nebuchadnezzar is probably the grandfather of Belshazzar and not the actual father. And that term father, your father, it doesn't have to mean your actual father, but someone that was before you either in the throne or even before you in the family. And so likely we have either grandma or mom who wasn't invited to the wild and immoral party, right? Hearing the commotion of all that's taken place and walking in and seeing her son or grandson in absolute fear, probably in a literal mess because he'd lost control of himself. And she says to him, King, calm down. Have you forgotten about the man named Daniel? Who your father, who the king before you set up as chief of all the magicians and enchanters and astrologers. The one who had the spirit of gods that dwelled in him. The one who was able to show light and wisdom and understanding. Because he had the spirit of God. It was almost as if God was speaking through this man. Don't panic. Call Daniel and Daniel will show you the dream. And so in verse 13, we see that Daniel is called and Daniel makes his way onto the scene. Now, just to remind you, this is 30 years after the events of verse 4. Daniel, by this point, is an old man. You say, how old? Daniel is probably as old as Mr. James, right? So, I mean, he's way on out there, amen? You wait, Mr. James? He is now, right? I'm kidding. He's been awake the whole time. Daniel is probably, in all honesty, Daniel's probably 80 years old. So Daniel's actually older than Mr. James. He's, he's probably 81, 82 years old. And he is sort of probably been put out to pasture, so to speak, at this point in his life because Belshazzar has not called on him and had to be reminded of him. So in verse 13, it says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of 
of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, this is funny to me because Daniel walks into a situation that he's been in before, and Daniel at this point in his life has learned that his God is far more superior and more powerful than any earthly king that has ever existed. Amen? So Daniel does not walk into the scene nervous to be in front of the king. Daniel walks into the scene. He doesn't disrespect the king, but let's just say Daniel is not impressed. And Daniel is not worried about this puny king that sits on the throne. And the king says to Daniel, if you'll interpret this, I'll give you all these gifts. And notice in verse 17, Daniel says very calmly and coolly, and I think humorously, you can keep your gifts and you can give them to another. I'm not impressed with you. I don't need anything from you. And Daniel's probably also thinking, you realize that there's an army outside infiltrating the city as we speak. You're probably going to be dead before the day's over. Right? So making me third in your kingdom is not all that impressive considering the kingdom is coming to an end momentarily. Right? So Daniel's like, not impressed, not afraid, but I'll do you a favor and I'll interpret the writing that is on the wall. And so in verse 17 it says, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Before he does, he sort of, he sort of gives him a lesson in history. O King, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave them, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would Excuse me, whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Listen to verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel says, King, I'll read the writing and I'll give you the interpretation. But before I do, you need a little history lesson. He says, do you not remember your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar? 
and how he ruled and how he was great and how he was powerful and how God had to teach him a lesson of humility? Do you not remember the family legacy The seven-year period where Nebuchadnezzar was chased from the kingdom, where he was driven out into the field, where he ate grass like a donkey, like a wild animal, and how God had to teach him that it is only by God's grace that his throne was established, and he only sat upon the throne because the God of heaven allowed it. And he reminds him in verse 22, he says, And Belshazzar, you knew all of this. In other words, this was family legacy. This was likely something a grandfather would have taught his grandson, certainly something that history would have taught him. He said, you knew this, but you still chose to disrespect and reject the one true God of Israel. You not only rejected him and refused to honor him, but you brought in his vessels And you blasphemed him, you defiled the vessels. You set yourself up against the God who is real. All so that you could pay homage to gods that do not see, do not hear, and do not know or have understanding. But yet the God who holds your breath and very life, you refuse to honor. And so notice, Daniel's not afraid, but boldly speaks truth to the king But in verse 24, he begins to read and interpret the message. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, verse 25. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekol, Parsan. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the meats. Mene, mene, to call parson, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Daniel provides the interpretation. He says, your days and your kingdom has been numbered, and guess what? It's over. You have been weighed by God, and you have been found wanting. Divided, your kingdom has been divided, and it's been given now to the Medes and to the Persians. Now, we're going to get to numbered and and divided, but I want you to focus with me, first of all, on this idea of weighed. The imagery of God weighing Belshazzar against God's standards, and Belshazzar comes up short. He comes up wanting. The imagery is if God had a measuring stick of God's standard and God holds it up to Belshazzar or he puts his standards on one side of the scale and Belshazzar on the other and Belshazzar is not where he needs to be. He is wanting. And it leads us to the question, well, what are the standards of God that we're supposed to measure up to? Well, God's standards, as revealed in the law and as clarified in the New Testament, God's standard for us that we have to measure up to, what we are weighed against is this. God's standard is perfect righteousness and holiness. Now that's a problem, amen? 
Because just like Belshazzar, we do not measure up to that standard. We are wanting ourselves. As a matter of fact, all mankind is. Paul makes this clear in Romans 3.10. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So how in the world can we measure up to God's standards of righteousness if none of us are righteous? Well, you guessed it. Only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul explains again in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 20 and 21. He says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what happened? God sent Jesus, who had no sin, to die for our sins so that we could be made righteous through faith and trust in Jesus. And God declares for us that if we will but repent of our sins and believe in who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross on our behalf, and if we will be willing to follow Jesus, that we will be made righteous through the righteousness of Christ. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because if you're like me, you are not yet fully righteous. Amen? We're not there, right? But yet, we are there in God's eyes because our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what we are kind of now, we will one day fully be Made righteous, not because of anything that we do, but because of what God does through us, through his son, Jesus Christ. God pours out the righteousness of Christ on us because we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. So understand, sin is a problem. It's a huge problem. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, there is a solution to the problem. If you will place your faith in Jesus, if you will surrender yourselves to him, if you will repent, believe, and follow Jesus, you will be made righteous. One day you and I will be placed on that scale. We will be placed against God's standards of righteousness and we will either be judged based upon our sin and our righteousness or we will be judged based upon the righteousness of Christ. And it all depends upon what we do with Jesus now and in this life. Amen? If you're on that scale by yourself, you will be wanting. You will not measure up. But if you've got the righteousness of Christ, that is exactly, exactly what God requires. And so understand, the sin of man is rebellion against the one true God. The sin of man does not go unnoticed by God. Thirdly, the sin of man separates us from God's perfect standard. And then fourthly and finally, the sin of man always brings about the judgment of God. Notice, sin not only doesn't go unnoticed, but sin does not go unpunished. Look with me in verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, verse 30, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Talk about a short-lived third-ranking member of the kingdom, right? Belshazzar keeps his word. He has to at this point. 
He gives Daniel all that he had promised Daniel. Daniel was probably as excited as you could imagine Daniel would have been because Daniel had already declared that on this very night your kingdom will end. And sure enough, in verse 30, Belshazzar and Babylon's kingdom comes to an end. We see in verse 30 that that very night he was killed, the Babylonian kingdom fell. And just as Daniel had prophesied back in chapter 2, Isaiah had prophesied years before, Babylon fell and was handed over by God to the Persians. Darius the Mede, likely another title for Cyrus the Persian, received the kingdom from God at about 62 years of age. So what happened? God judged Babylon. And God judged Belshazzar. And what's ironic and worth remembering is that Daniel was there in the presence of Babylon because God had earlier judged Israel. There's a pattern. God judges sin. God will always and always has judged sin. Not only does sin not go unnoticed, sin cannot go unpunished. God is just and therefore he must judge sin. And so that's what takes place in this chapter. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Belshazzar and Babylon's days had come to an end and the kingdom was handed over to a divided empire. In other words, God's judgment fell. We will not escape the, God, the judgment of God for our sin. We will either be weighed based upon our works, efforts, and righteousness, or we will be weighed based upon the righteousness, of, uh, the righteousness of Christ. But in either case, we will be weighed. Judgment is coming. Amen? So what do we see in this text? Well, we see that the sin of man is rebellion against the one true God, that that God does not miss our sin. That our sin separates us from God's standards of righteousness and that one day God will bring about judgment for all of our sin. So what must we do? The only thing we can do. We must trust in the only means by which we can be saved and that is in and through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. He really and truly came to this earth, lived a perfect life of righteousness so that he could go to the cross and die as a sacrifice and payment for our sin. He was righteous, we are not righteous. But he died so that we could live. And Jesus makes it clear that if we will repent of our sins, that means to turn away from our sins, that means to confess our sins, and our need of forgiveness. And if we will then repent of our sins and believe in Jesus, who he is and what he did on our behalf, and if we will then be willing to follow him in our lives. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is an interesting case study when it comes to salvation. Nebuchadnezzar had an encounter with God early on in his ministry when he saw Daniel and his companions eat a diet that was unhealthy, that wasn't as strong, but yet God promoted them anyway. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was reminded of God's presence and power again in chapter 3 when he saw three men get thrown into the fire and four men walking about and three come out unsinged by the fire because their God had protected them. And in every instance and in every case, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged, your God is real and your God is powerful. But it wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar was judged by God in chapter 4, had his mind ripped from him only by God's grace to be given back, that it appears that Nebuchadnezzar finally said, I will now follow you. Because that's what genuine salvation is. It's not just acknowledging that God exists. It's not just acknowledging that God is real, that God is powerful, that God is holy, that God sent Jesus, that Jesus is God's son. It's acknowledging those things and allowing those things to transform you because you believe them to the point that you are willing to follow Jesus in your life. That's what salvation is and that's what it looks like. And I want you to understand this text makes it clear we have a huge problem that we cannot escape unless we put our faith and trust in Jesus. So here's the application this morning. One, if you're here, if you're watching online and you find yourself where you now know that you are a sinner, you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And when you stand before God in judgment, you will stand before him without the blood of Jesus covering your sins then I want you to know that today is the day that you can give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. If you're here, then in just a few moments, we're going to have a hymn of invitation. That's your chance to come forward and to put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you're watching us online, then you reach out, messenger, text, whatever you need to do. But that's your chance to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And then secondly, believers... If you have dealt with your sin by trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's fantastic. Amen. Praise the Lord, right? But that doesn't mean that you are still not struggling with sin. We still have a responsibility to deal with our sin by confessing it and seeking God's forgiveness, not only God's, but those that we've sinned against. Don't fall into the trap that allows us to deal with our sin by trusting in Jesus once and then just sort of overlooking our sin as we move on in our Christian life, hoping that God doesn't see what we're doing when no one else is watching. God sees our sin, amen? Therefore, let's confess it. Let's confess it because he is a gracious, merciful, and forgiving God, amen? Listen, I'm not gonna tell you that you're gonna stop sinning because you're not. But I'm telling you, if you'll deal with your sin by confessing it, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Amen? So let's deal with our sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your grace and your mercy and your love for us. We thank you that you came to this earth lived a perfect and sinless life of righteousness so that you could die on the cross, a suitable and perfect sacrifice for us, paying for our sins, so that if we would put our trust in you, we could have our sins forgiven, we could have your righteousness poured out on us so that we would not be wanting, that we would not fall short when we are measured against God's standard of righteousness. And so, Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for living for us. Thank you for saving us. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, then, Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts, that you would call them unto yourself, and that they would know that you love them 
and they would know that you're calling out to them. Lord, I also pray for those of us who have trusted you as Lord and Savior, who have already had our sins forgiven, but yet still find ourselves struggling with sin on a regular basis. Lord, remind us of how big of a deal sin is, that we might confess it and that we might deal with our sins even as we try to walk with you. Lord, we love you and we surrender ourselves in this invitation to you now. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.